So let me start with scripture tonight. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 33. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all these things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So, one Sunday, about seven years ago, um, I'd just gotten out of a church service with um, the church I grew up going to, when my mom came up to me and let me know that there was a friend of hers who had been sitting behind me in the, in the pew behind me. Uh, and in the middle of worship, she had felt strongly impressed to share a phrase that she had felt like God had given her for me. And the woman didn't really know me. I didn't really know her, honestly, that well. And she was so shy that she actually didn't even share it with me. She went up to my mom, and mom shared it with my mom, so my mom could share it with me. And the phrase was just this, these three little words. It was the phrase, in due time. Now, what that woman probably didn't know was that that summer before, um, I had just I'd moved back to the U.S. after living for two years in England, and I'd had the doors of two particular career pathways uh, that I had moved there to pursue slammed shut in my face. It was pretty abrupt, pretty, uh, pretty heartbreaking. And so I, I'd gotten home. Uh, I was confused. I was back at square one, had no idea what was next. Um, what she probably didn't know was that for those six months since then, I'd been pretty regularly crying out to God, looking for direction. <laughs> and it just felt like God was saying nothing. But, uh, just because of the way that my brain works... <laughs> I heard that phrase, in due time, and immediately it just, I connected it to the place in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, maybe some of you know this place, where it says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, and, he may, and that he may lift you up in due time. Now, for me, there was some, some weight to those words because of the way that it intersected so profoundly with where I was at at that particular time in my life. And sure enough, a few months later, I was approached by the founder of Thrive to, to take his job. <laughs> and so sure enough, God, God knew what he was doing. He didn't just leave me stuck at square one. Now, let me tell you another story. Um, and if you'll forgive me, I, I've chosen to leave this a little bit more general since it involves some personal information that includes more than just myself um, that I just don't really feel at liberty to share. But uh, this is a little bit more of a recent story. Uh, so this was when I was at a, a major crossroads uh, somewhat recently. And the decision that I was having to make was one that I knew could pretty significantly impact the direction of my life for, for you know, a long time. And so once again, I'd been seeking God for months about this. Um, through prayer, through reflection, through godly counsel, I'd kind of finally come to like a tentative decision about what I thought the right thing to do was. Uh, but I still felt unsure about pulling the trigger. Well, uh, the very night that I had kind of set as like my deadline for when I was going to actually pull the trigger, make the decision, um, I was at a prayer gathering. It was a citywide cross-church prayer gathering uh, that was 24 hours long, and, and I, I was so 
concerned with this, this choice I was about to make that literally, like, before the last hour of this thing begins, I'm on my knees in the back of the building, just praying, asking God, just, like, confirm, please, that this is the right thing to do. I had before kind of asked, prayed and asked God, like, God, would you just give me an outrageous sign here that this is the right thing? Well, anyway, the prayer event ends. I'm talking to some people from some different churches. Get in a conversation with this couple that I know that goes to a different church. And about 15 minutes into the conversation, one of them says to me, like, hey, this, I, I was a little reluctant to share this earlier, but I just feel like there's something God wants me to share with you. And, and she goes on to describe in, like, remarkable detail the very decision that I'm wrestling with. And then she says that she has this sense that I'm second-guessing myself about it, which was exactly what I was doing. <laughs> and then I ex- kind of explained to her what the situation was and said that you were pretty spot on. <laughs> And that night, you can bet I, I pulled the trigger. I made the decision. Now, you're all probably thinking, this guy's crazy. <laughs> I don't know what comes to mind when you hear those stories, but I'm just sharing things that have really happened to me. These are true stories. And the reason I'm sharing them is that tonight, we're looking at 1 Corinthians. We're in a series on the, the Holy Spirit that's been requested by the Thrive Leadership Team. And you've got to look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 when you look at a series on the Holy Spirit. And chapter 14 is the chapter that... Uh, Paul devotes to two gifts of the Spirit in particular, the gifts of tongues and the gifts of prophecy. And the stories that I've just shared with you are what I believe are examples of what the Bible would call the gift of prophecy. Um, And you can define that uh, like this. Uh, This is a definition that I want to borrow tonight from um, Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem is a Reformed Baptist theologian. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, Prophecy is the gift of speaking merely human words to report something God brings to mind. Prophecy is speaking merely human words to report something that God brings to mind. And so that's the major focus of chapter 14. And uh, just because it's, it's a subject that has a lot of different opinions and controversy about it, I thought it would be best just to take this week to just focus on the gift of prophecy, and then at a later time we can focus on the other gift that's talked about in this passage, which is the gift of tongues. Um, so just two things first before I go any further. Um, first of all, I, I just want to name the fact that this gift is probably one of the most egregiously abused gifts in the church. And so it's a controversial gift, and my desire is simply to go to Scripture and just to show you um, what I see in Scripture about what this gift is. Uh, And so whether you consider yourself a cessationist or a continuationist, if you remember those terms from last time, um, you know, we, we, we as a community want what we believe about anything to be shaped by scripture. And so uh, that's why I believe just about every single verse that's mentioned in this talk tonight is on the handout. It's on page three. So if you want to follow along as I'm looking at some of these different scriptures, um, I've tried to put them all right there in front of you. Um, and again, yeah, just we want scripture to shape everything that we believe uh, rather than our, our experience. Scripture should always go higher than experience. Scripture should always rank higher than our loyalty to a particular theological tribe and to the boundaries of our own comfort zone. So, and then second thing I want to say just before we get started, um, on the handout, you might have noticed that I stopped short of reading some verses in verses 34 and 35. Uh, and those verses have to do with women's roles in the church. And I just want to let you know that as much as you may want me to talk about that tonight, I'm not going to talk about it tonight. Uh, those are important verses. Uh, you, we should consider them. But we are not going to consider them tonight. So if you were thinking that, uh, oh, man, what a cop-out. Michael didn't read the controversial 
verses about that topic. Well, just, just know I'm not trying to avoid it, but we just don't have time for it, okay? So. Yeah! We can address it. <laughs> Thanks. No, I don't. Moving right along. <laughs> okay, here's how I want to work through this chapter. Um, let's look at the gift of prophecy through three lenses. Number one, defining it. Number two, using it. And number three, wanting it. Defining it, using it, wanting it. Okay? So, okay, this first one, <laughs> I'm going to spend the longest time on this because this is really the zinger here. Um, so last week, the, 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 the topic was, are the miraculous gifts for today? Um, in other words, are gifts such as prophecy uh, or tongues, have they ceased? Uh, and the case that we, we made last week was that Scripture doesn't clearly teach anywhere that they have ceased. But then that raises the other question. You know, let's say that that's the case. Even though prophecy could still be out there, is it actually out there? Um, is what many charismatics would say uh, is prophecy, is it really biblical prophecy? So you've got you've to define it. Um, now, I'm going to start here with kind of a, a bit of a thesis statement. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek thesis statement, so please, please forgive me. Um, but, you know, a little humor can, can, can be helpful sometimes. Here's, here's, my, here's my mischievous thesis statement tonight. My thesis statement is, no matter who you are, whether you're a cessationist or a continuationist or a Calvinist or an Arminian or a conservative or a charismatic, or just, you know, even if you don't even know what any of those words mean, which probably is a good thing, you probably already believe in New Testament prophecy. Or just about. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Um, by giving you seven characteristics of New Testament prophecy according to Scripture, and then I'll explain what I mean here. So seven characteristics of New Testament prophecy. First, and, and really significantly, New Testament prophecy is not the same as Old Testament prophecy. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 39, be eager to prophesy, we know he can't be referring to prophecy in the Old Testament sense. Um, in the Old Testament, there were prophets like Elijah or Elisha or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel who either spoke or wrote down or both God's very words. So Old Testament prophets were infallible. They were authoritative. To disobey an Old Testament prophecy was to disobey God. However, when you come to the New Testament, in Matthew eleven thirteen, Jesus makes this statement. He says, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Now that indicates that with John the Baptist, the kind of authoritative Old Testament prophecy that were to treat as scripture came to an end. Let me give you another example of this. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we're told that in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Now these verses imply that with the coming of Jesus, God no longer delivers new scripture-level revelation through prophets like in the Old Testament. And yet, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Peter says that in the last days, God's people will prophesy. And you might remember from last week that that phrase, in the last days, refers to after Jesus' coming, the time in between his first and second advent. So that can only mean that New Testament prophecy is fundamentally different than Old Testament prophecy. And this actually bears out even at the level of, of the very word. Because in the time of Paul, the very word prophet or prophesy, it could refer to scripture-level revelation, you know, the Old Testament prophets, the law and the prophets. But it also could refer to a, a variety of, of non-authoritative speech. So just here's one example. In Titus chapter 1, verse 12, 
Paul quotes a pagan teacher, Epimenides, and he calls him a prophet. So the word prophet had a variety of meanings, uh, both in, in the language of that time and in the New Testament. Just as this, in the same way, the word apostles in the New Testament sometimes refers to capital A apostles who wrote scripture, as well as to lowercase a apostles who, were, who did not. And, and it was sort of just basically another term for missionary. So it's really significant to, to recognize that New Testament prophecy is not the same as Old Testament prophecy, no matter what other similarities there may be. So that's number one. Number two, New Testament prophecy builds up the church. Um, so 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, says, Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Or another way that you can put this, prophecy is to stir up, build up, and bind up. Stirring up is strengthening. Uh, <clears throat> building up is encouragement or edification. And binding up is comfort. So prophecy is less foretelling as it is forthtelling using merely human words to share something that God wants to bring to mind so that the church would be built up. Number three, New Testament prophecy is not the same as teaching. Uh, now, there, there are some similarities, because if prophecy edifies the church, of course, teaching edifies the church as well. And we, but we know that these are not the same gifts. One reason for that is that in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, Paul distinguishes prophecy from teaching. So he says that these are different things. And then teaching is a gift that's associated with the proclamation and the explanation of the scriptures. So, for example, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So, so prophecy is not the same as teaching. Uh, and then number four, prof, uh, one, one of the differences, one of the reasons New Testament prophecy is distinct from teaching is that prophecy is based on a revelation that God's Spirit brings to mind spontaneously. Now, this might seem a little strange, but look at, look at chapter 14, especially verses 29 through 31. In this passage, we read, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. This, this passage is showing that prophecy comes by a spontaneously given revelation. And we know that it's spontaneous because it comes to an individual in the middle of a service. It's not like someone has like brought their sermon manuscript and they're ready to stand up and preach a whole, a whole teaching message right there. So this isn't a prepared teaching or a sermon. And we also know that it's a revelation from God rather than just human thought. Um, this is because the word for reveal here, um, the word <clears throat> apocalypse, this is a word that in the New Testament refers to something made known through God's activity. Now there's another reason we know that this, is, this kind of revelation is not just a sort of a mere human thought, but something that has a divine origin. And that's because of verse 32. Verse 32 says, The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, which taken literally and in its context refers not to the prophet's own spirit, but the manifestations of the Holy Spirit working in the prophets. So I believe, I think it's verse 19, I want to say in this chapter. Oh, sorry, verse 12, where Paul says, since, uh, so with you yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, what that, I believe literally what that says there is since you are eager for spirits, 
So when it says here that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets, it's referring there, I believe, to the working of the Holy Spirit, and that's the source of where those revelations are coming from. And I just lost the page I was on. <laughs> this is clearly not a prophetic message. This is a teaching. <laughs> Aha. <laughs> okay, so uh, now, here's where it gets fun. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example from the Reformed Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, now, Charles Spurgeon, um, in his autobiography, recounts that there was a moment when he abruptly broke off in the middle of a sermon he was giving... He pointed somewhere in the audience and he said, Young man, those gloves you are wearing have not been paid for. You have stolen them from your employer. And he went back to his sermon, <laughs> presumably. <laughs> well, after the service, a young man came up to Charles Spurgeon and said, Sure enough, it was true. And in fact, let me read you this quote from Spurgeon in his autobiography. And he says this. Now, he didn't call these prophecies, but I believe that this is kind of the, you know, basically the same idea. He says... I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to the friends, come, see a man that told me all things that I ever I did. <laughs> Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul, or else he could not have described me so exactly. You guys are probably thankful that I've never tried that. <laughs> so a prophetic word is something that is revealed spontaneously. It might involve something that God reveals about someone that they themselves don't know. I believe it could involve speaking a word of divine comfort into a deep personal struggle that they know about but that you don't. And this is why in verse 25 Paul can write that prophecy can have the effect of disclosing the secrets of a person's heart, so that, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So do you see that when prophecy is used in a biblical, orderly way, the result is the worship of God? Number five, New Testament prophecy does not possess scripture-level authority. Now, you might think that if prophecy is based on a revelation from God, New Testament prophecy must be infallible and authoritative, just like the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles. But if you look at Scripture, uh, there are instances where God is said to reveal something that is not authoritative in this sense. So just one example, Philippians 3.15. Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal, same term, that also to you. Now, surely Paul is not saying that God will reveal to the Philippians scripture-level words binding to all, but simply that he'll reveal to them personally where their faith has room to grow. Now, that's the kind of revelation in this passage, and the way that we know this uh, even more firmly is because of verses 36 and 37. Paul says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So first in verse 36, Paul implies that the prophetic utterances of the Corinthian prophets were not the word of God in the sense of infallible scripture. And in verse 37, he sets his own words as an apostle over the words of the Corinthian prophets 
meaning that prophecy does not have the same authority as Scripture. It's really important to see that. Um, Here's how D.A. Carson, he's the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. He's a scholar pretty respected in the Reformed and evangelical worlds. He puts it like this. When Paul presupposes in 1 Corinthians 14.30 that the gift of prophecy depends on revelation, we are not limited to a form of authoritative revelation that threatens the finality of the canon. To argue in such a way is to confuse the terminology of Protestant systematic theology with the terminology of the scripture writers. Number six, New Testament prophecy is not infallible and must be weighed. So that means that it is prone to error. Um, And you see this, let me give you at least four ways that you can see this. First, in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, Paul says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Now in Acts 17, verse 11, maybe you remember that Luke says of the Bereans, that they examined the scriptures so that by careful study they could confirm that what Paul said aligned with the Old Testament. But in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, the word way is a different term that refers not to studying and investigating, but to sifting and separating. So in other words, a prophetic word can include error which needs to be sifted out. A second example of this, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So in the context of prophecies, Paul calls for testing, and he calls for good things to be held onto and evil things to be rejected. It's a very similar thought to 1 Corinthians 14. Third, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that we prophesy in part. And a few verses later, compares this to seeing in a mirror dimly, suggesting that New Testament prophecy can be incomplete or even fuzzy like a poor reflection. And then fourth and finally, the way we know prophecy can be prone to error is because the New Testament itself actually gives us a test case. So in the book of Acts, in chapter 21, verse 11, there's a a New Testament prophet named Agabus who predicts what will happen when Paul goes to Jerusalem. And here's what he says. Uh, Let me just read, starting from verse, yeah, top of verse 11. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So Agabus' prophecy here, it's that the Jews will bind Paul and that the Jews will deliver over Paul to the Gentiles. Okay? But in verse 33... Of the same chapter, Luke, who actually here uses the same Greek word for bind that Agabus does, records that it's not the Jews who bind Paul, but it's the Romans. Nor do the Jews deliver over Paul, because the Romans have to literally rescue Paul from the Jews before they kill him. So this is kind of an interesting test case, isn't it? Because the gist of Agabus' prophecy is correct. But if you want to get precision-y here, it's, it's technically wrong in two key details. And in the same way... What Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians is that New Testament prophecy can be like seeing in a mirror dimly, that you are not necessarily expecting it to be, in this, you know, to be as uh, specific and error-free as you might see in Old Testament prophecy or in something the apostles might say. And then last of all, New Testament prophecy is about Jesus. Um, Revelation 19.10 
says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All New Testament prophecy exists to point to Jesus. All New Testament prophecy exists to build up the church. And this is why the method for weighing prophecy is always to ask, does this align with Scripture? Does this build up the church? Does this glorify Jesus? Does this align with Scripture? Does this build up the church? Does this glorify Jesus? So, okay, let's put these six, uh, seven characteristics all together and see what we got. So, first of all, we've got New Testament prophecy is not the same as Old Testament prophecy. It does not possess Scripture-level authority. Unlike teaching, it's based on spontaneous God-given revelation or insight. It's prone to error. It's not infallible and therefore must be weighed and sifted. Hence, the overall definition, New Testament prophecy, is speaking merely human words to report something God brings to mind. Okay, now back to my very mischievous thesis. You probably already believe in New Testament prophecy, even if you may not think of it that way. My guess here is, is just that every single believer would say that you have had times where maybe you've been reading scripture, you've been listening to a sermon, and it just felt like, like God highlighted something that was uniquely for you and whatever that was. Or maybe you've had the experience of asking God for guidance and you felt like he uniquely led you through circumstance or, or through some particular way. Maybe you've had times where God has uncannily met you through something someone has said or through a series of quote-unquote coincidental circumstances that have taken place. Now, of course, you can't prove it was God. You'd be crazy to ever think of placing you know, those kinds of divine whispers at the level of Scripture. But most of us might even go tell a friend, you know, hey, I, I really felt like God spoke to me through that message today, or I, I really believe that God led me through this particular circumstance. And of course, this only kind of makes sense with what you see in Scripture itself, or according to Scripture itself. God doesn't only speak through Scripture, but through nature, Psalm 19, verse 2. Or sometimes even directly through the Holy Spirit, who, by the way, can talk. This was the thing that blew me, the most, blew me away the most when I was looking into stuff for the series, is there's 22 times in the New Testament where it refers to the Holy Spirit speaking. So like Acts 8.29, imagine being this guy. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. I just wonder what that would have been like. I don't know. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> it just it blew me away. So here's the thing. <clears throat> the reason why I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek saying, like, this probably is not as big of a leap as you might think, is that all of that stuff about like ways that God like shows up in the circumstances of our lives. Prophecy is simply God doing that kind of thing through other people. Isn't that cool? God is simply doing that kind of thing, but he wants to use you to encourage another believer in that. And this is why prophecy is such a beautiful gift and one that should be appreciated, should be cherished rather than looked at with fear or with trepidation. Um, to quote Pastor Tyler Staten, prophecy is an invitation to intimacy. Prophecy is an invitation to intimacy. Teaching is a bit like a megaphone. You know, God, through the teaching of his word, loudly, clearly announces and proclaims who he is to anyone who has ears to hear. But you can think of prophecy like an arrow which God tenderly, intimately whispers who he is into the deepest thoughts, hopes, and pains of our lives. I want to tell you a story that I heard this week. A bunch of people are away on a weekend retreat. I'm assuming it's some kind of Christian thing. I don't know the nature of it. At the end of the gathering, 
someone present gets up in front of the group and they share that they have a sense that there's someone at this gathering who's at the end of their rope and is planning as soon as they get home from the retreat to take their own life. And not just that, but they literally have a suicide note that's already been written. And that they'd even come to the retreat almost kind of in a bargaining with God kind of way, saying that, like, if God, if you don't show up at this, then this is my last-ditch chance, and I'm going to go through with it. Does that resonate with anyone in the room? And it did. There was a person there in the room who was in that exact circumstance, who had come to the retreat, who had written the note and was going to go home and take their own life, had God not stepped in through a word of prophecy to show, to demonstrate the love and the care with which he saw and loved and knew that person. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. It's one thing to know intellectually that God loves you. It's a whole other thing to experience that God loves you as his love becomes real in the most deeply personal parts of your life. And this is why the gift of prophecy is a gift. So that's defining it. And then just much more briefly, I want to I talk a little bit practically about what does Paul say about how to use this gift? Um, I said at the beginning, <clears throat> the gift of prophecy has been profoundly abused. Uh, just today, <laughs> I saw an article about Kenneth Copeland, who's a famous prosperity gospel preacher. And it was about how he claimed he'd received a word of the Lord about God wanting him to have a private jet. <laughs> and yet the rest of the article, coincidentally, was basically no more than a fundraising pitch. So if you've come from a background of charismatic Christianity, or if you've very decidedly not come from a background of charismatic Christianity because of stories like Kenneth Copeland then you may have experienced or heard of abuses like these. And so, I want to talk very briefly about how this gift is intended to be used well. Three things, for others, in humility, with community. For others, in humility, with community. Um, First of all, for others. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul is so clear here that spiritual gifts are given for the common good. And this means that prophecy must always be given in love. Prophecy is never to be given to draw attention to oneself. It's never to flaunt one's own spirituality. It's never to lord it over other people. It's always to be done in love for the sake of building up, encouraging, and comforting Christ's church. Number two, it should be done in humility. Um, one One of the great abuses in the charismatic movement is when people have tried to deliver prophetic words by saying, God told me to tell you, or thus says the Lord. But if what we've seen about a biblical definition of prophecy is real, then that means that prophecy does not have that kind of authority, and that prophecy does not, you can't have that kind of confidence. There's, there's the, the risk of there being error. And so the best way that you can share with another person, if you feel like there's some sort of impression that God has given you, if you feel like there's some way in which you're supposed to share something from him with another person, is to say, you know, I might be wrong about this, but I I just have a sense that maybe this is something for you. That might even just be simply a particular passage of scripture that you feel like the Lord brings to mind for another person. But the point is, it should always be done in a spirit of humility. God is the perfect speaker, We are not perfect listeners. 
And so humility is always important. And then number three, with community. So in verse 29, I think it is, Paul says, let the others weigh what is said. Um, if someone were to come up to me and they were to say, I think I have the gift of prophecy, one of the first questions I'd want to ask them is, what's your community like? <laughs> There's a verse in the book of Proverbs that says <clears throat> something about, uh, he, I think it's he who delights in his own opinion isolates himself. He goes against all sound judgment. And, and one of the, 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 the wonderful principles found all throughout the Bible is that there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. If you believe that, that you're hearing something from God, then you need to have other people around you who are more spiritually mature than you who can help weigh that. You know, the thing is, you may not know Scripture well enough. Remember, prophecy has to be weighed against Scripture. And so it's always so important that you have other people around you who can actually hold you accountable and point you back to the truth of God's word. Now, there's a lot more that could be said here. One thing I, one thing I do want to say as well is that I talked about abuses earlier. Um, I think, and this is not in my notes, I'm just going to kind of speak off the cuff here. I think one of, one of the things that, has, that makes prophecy such a powerful gift, but also a painful gift, is that there may be people who, who relate to this experience that I, I've had, where I've had times where I've thought, you know, maybe I'm supposed to say something to this person. And I kind of am not sure, I kind of second guess myself, and then maybe in the end I don't. Um, you know, maybe... There's almost like this unhealthy sense that if I don't, if I don't act on this, that, you know, therefore I'm like, you know, God is going to reject me for that. Uh, you know, and basically what that's doing is it's forgetting the gospel. You know, praise God that, that as with anything in our lives, our, our acceptance by the Father doesn't come from, you know, what, what, what skill you have using the New Testament gift of prophecy, which, by the way, the Bible says not everyone has. And so if you're here and maybe you've had the experience where you've thought, man, I really bungled something where I felt like God was supposed to, sh I was supposed to share this and I didn't. Uh, just just get in touch with the heart of God. God's heart is never through prophecy to tear down but to build up. And so while there is a sense in which we're called to be obedient to the things that God leads us to do, um, don't allow this gift to become a burden. Allow it to be a blessing. And just as you, you know, if you're someone who, who feels like maybe this is a gift that you operate in, then simply take basic steps to flex that muscle without losing sleep over whether or not you've got it perfectly. So that's a few things about using it. And then last of all, wanting it. In verse 39, Paul concludes this whole section by saying, eagerly desire prophecy. Now that's kind of a bit of a zinger because, um, man, you know, I think if you are a human, then it's pretty possible that you may not really want to desire prophecy <laughs> because, gosh, the idea of this gift um, it can be great. It can also be a little scary. It's a little maybe outside of our box or our comfort zone. Um, but I just want to draw attention to the fact that three times in chapters 12 through 14, Paul says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Chapter 14, verse 1, uh, eagerly desire the greater gifts, especially so that you may prophesy. And then last of all, verse 39, eagerly desire prophecy. And I'll tell you, um, in, in just my own journey, I, as I hope you know, have had just a deep, deep, deep love of the scriptures for most of my waking Christian life. And one of the reasons for that is that it has been through scripture that God has so profoundly revealed his character to me and shown me his love and his power and his majesty. I mean, you know, there's a place... <laughs> 
In the book of Genesis, it's, it's the story of Joseph and his brothers. And I think for the last probably close to 10 years, I've not been able to read that story without crying. I just, I, every time I think I'm going to get through it, I just never get through without just breaking down and weeping because it's just such a beautiful story to me that demonstrates the heart of God. Scripture should be the utter foundation of our lives. And yet if you don't have a desire to know God and experience him, can I suggest, can I challenge you to seek that? Can I challenge you to seek to know God, not just intellectually, but to know him experientially? The funny thing about this is that if you're from a more charismatic background, chances are you need more scripture in your life. You know, when you're making a decision, you feel like, oh my gosh, I just have to hear a word from the Lord. You probably don't. You know, you probably just need to make a decision and trust that, you know, the Bible says God works all things for good according to those who love him. You can use your rational brain that God gave you to make a, a, a wise God-glorifying decision. And you don't need, you know, some kind of crazy, you know, sign from heaven to make that decision. But the other thing is that, you know, if you're maybe from less of a charismatic background and you're a guy like me who grew up loving the Bible, well, chances are you might need a little bit more of, of this kind of gift in your life. And the thing about it is that you can't, like, wrap your brain around it. You can't operate in it or, or experience it just by doing more Bible study. Is your heart open to God speaking to you and however he wants to do that? Is your heart open to something that is outside of the normal box? This is something that is experiential more than simply doctrinal. And actually, the neat thing is that if that's kind of more the, the, the side that you feel like you're on, chances are you probably know Scripture well enough to use the gift of prophecy better than all the charismatics because you know the Bible better. <laughs> no offense to anybody. <clears throat> so I just want to say, um, this is a good thing, and it's a good thing to desire. You can, you know, we can talk tonight in groups about um, the Scriptures themselves. You know, ultimately what matters most is just that, that it's been defined correctly. But if it has been defined correctly, then the question is, do you desire this gift? And then last of all, I mentioned verse 25. Verse 25 is where Paul says that through the gift of prophecy, the secrets of a person's heart can be disclosed so that falling on their face, they will worship God and declare, God is really among you. And one of the great blessings of the gift of prophecy is that there's an undeniable demonstration to the fact that God is real and that God is is working. And the result is that God is glorified. And so that ultimately is where I want to land. I, I desire for my own life, and I hope you desire this for your own life, to be the kind of life where someone cannot but look at you and say, I see in this person such a reality of who God is that I cannot deny that he's really there. And I, I, I long for, for any Christian community that I'm a part of to be a Christian community where anyone who walks in has the undeniable sense that, that God is really there. And that happens not just through the gift of prophecy. That happens not just through the gift of teaching. It happens through the love with which God's people love each other. It happens through hospitality. It happens through service. It happens through all the gifts working together. But I do want to draw your attention to the fact that Paul singles out this gift and says that it has a unique ability to do that. And so, let me just leave it there. Um, and allow us to wrestle with this tonight. Um, I, I'm not in any way suggesting that any, uh, you know, anybody or everybody has to take this same particular view of this gift. All I've tried to do is to show you what I see the scriptures teach. 
Uh, and so uh, we'll go to small groups now and uh, come back here at about 9, 9.05 for one last song. Um, and we'll just have some open discussion. Uh, leaders, there are some questions on the back. I didn't distinguish them between text questions and life questions. There's just uh, a whole bunch of questions. So um, let me pray for us, and then we'll go to groups. Um, Father, I just pray that you um, would take away anything that I've said tonight that is not of you and that is not helpful or edifying. I pray that you would work through anything I have said that is helpful and that is edifying and that is true. And Father, that uh, no matter where we are um, when it comes to um, anything pertaining to the topic tonight, Father, that you would just, by your Spirit, lead us into all truth. Help us show us what it looks like to have your heart, to have your heart for these gifts, and to use them for the sake of Jesus being known, Jesus being loved, Jesus being glorified. It's in his name we pray this. Amen.